sixth message on verses 12 through 17. And I promise you we are going to get to the 17th verse. But we're not going to get to it in this message. Uh, Next week I'm going to conclude this little mini-series that we've had on the final invitation. And then we'll be ready to move on in this quest that we have to finish this great book, which is the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Verses 12 through 16 that I've spent so much time with here are a prelude to that invitation. And I think that we find some very good information here for those that don't know Christ. There's there's just a lot to consider in these verses, and that's why I've decided to take some time with this. And I use verse number 12 as a springboard to get us into the rest of the discussion. Here Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. And we gladly admit that the primary emphasis in that verse is the reward that's given to those that know Christ. And that verse is an incentive for godly living and for each of us to perform the Christian duties that God has called us to so that we will not be ashamed at his coming. We want that reward. And Jesus promises that because it's an enhancement to our happiness in heaven. It's an increase in our capacity. Those rewards are an increase in our capacity to enjoy heaven. And since we're going to be there for eternity, then that means that the value of the good works that we do on earth for the Lord is incalculable. Those things become, well, it's where the finite actually becomes the infinite. And those aren't works that save because there are no works that will save us, but they're works that are done with a desire in our heart because we have been changed. We've been saved to be conformed to the image of Christ, and Christ did nothing but good works. And so if we're going to be like him, then we want to do the works that he's called us to do. So we freely admit that the emphasis in verse number 12 is for those that know Christ, but we've also included an application for those that are lost. There's a reward for them, and in no sense is that a, is a, is that a good reward. Every evil deed requires a just recompense of reward. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, as we might say, and uh, only here the application of that would be is... We need to consider that every sin that is committed is a sin against the eternal God. And because of that, those sins require eternal punishment. But there is an interesting point that Jesus makes in Matthew 18 about punishment in hell. There he says, Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. For it is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. I don't have time to exposit those verses, but a very quick application of them can be made to our text. If you find that your hands or your feet lead you into evil, it would be better for you to be without hands and without your feet than to do things with your hands and go places with your feet that would cause you to enter into sin. And then the, the part of the, about the eyes, the eyes are the window to the soul. And if your eyes are prone to gaze upon evil and to take that in, then it would be better for you to, 
to be blind in this life than to suffer just one more sin that you might be led into because of things that you want to look at. So sin is a very, it's a very serious thing. It's serious business because the reward for sin is an eternal one. So it's for these reasons that the final opportunity, this final invitation is given for people to very carefully consider what's revealed in this book and in the rest of the Bible because the Jesus that you ignore is the Jesus that you will answer to. And verse number 16 gives us just a power-packed description of who Jesus is. Now, verse 13 gave us a glimpse. He's the Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the eternal one who ever lives to justify or condemn. And he gives all people one of two avenues. There's an avenue to eternal blessing or an avenue to eternal damnation. And which one of those that it will be is determined by the response to this invitation. So if you look in chapter 22, verse number 12, Jesus says, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things which uh, are in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Now this evening we're going to spend our time in verse number 16 and your outline begins with the fifth point in this series. So I don't know if anybody here, I don't think anybody here it's your first night that you've been here for these sermons but if somebody at their first time uh, be aware I understand outlines begin with number one. Our outline begins with number five tonight because we're way past number one. So we're going to continue with verse or with number five. So number five on your outline is the regency of Christ. And I have four subtopics under this heading. And since I ran out of time last time, I'm going to continue with those. And we're going to spend all of our time this evening in the 16th verse. We'll review those first two points and then we'll continue with the last two. And I remind you that the regency of Christ is is the time of his governance. And in this verse, we have mention of both Jesus and David. And whenever you see those two put together in scripture, you know that there is some connection to the kingdom. Jesus told Pilate, At his trial about his kingship, he said, To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world. His ability to be an earthly king could only be accomplished by the incarnation. Now, if you'll notice the first words of verse number 16, it says, I, Jesus. And Jesus is the name of the man. He wasn't Jesus until he was born of Mary, not until he was the Son of God who came in human flesh, He became Jesus. He says, I, Jesus. And that denotes his purpose. It tells us how that he will obtain subjects for his kingdom. A king has no kingdom without subjects. So his name, the name is descriptive because it tells us that Jesus is the Savior. The angel Gabriel told Joseph, you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. 
And this is what Jesus means. It means Jehovah saves. In Hebrew, it means Yahweh is salvation. And so Jesus is able to gain subjects for his kingdom because he saves people from their sins. His kingdom is a, is a holy and a righteous kingdom, and only those that are holy and righteous can enter into it. And none of us have that ability because we've all been born of sin. Uh, We're sinners by birth and by nature and by practice. We are unholy and we're unrighteous. We're under the condemnation of God. The Bible says that we are enemies of his kingdom. In fact, the Bible teaches that we're subjects of another kingdom. We're subjects of the kingdom of darkness. And in order to come into Christ's kingdom, we have to be changed. We have to be born again. We have to be transformed from sinners into saints. And when we are, we're translated out of that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Christ. Colossians says, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus is the Savior, and the way that he populates his kingdom is by bringing in those people that he died to save. Now, secondly, we see that Jesus is our God. Jesus is the divine agent in creation. And we see his deity expressed in two ways in this verse. He says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel. Angels are God's creation. They're his servants. And so when Jesus says, my angel... That equates him, equates him rather with the eternal God, that he is one with the Father. But perhaps more important than that statement is the one that follows. And these are two of the most important words that you find in the Bible. Jesus says, I am. And in those two words, we find packed the eternal being of God. He's the one, according to the first chapter, which is, which was, and which is to come. He's the one who exists in the eternal present. Now, if you take some time to do a little bit of research on the numbers of times that Jesus says, I am, you'll find this long list of descriptive terms and phrases for him. And I gave you several of those last week, so we won't go through those again. But those I am's hearken back to the time that God revealed his name to Moses and to his people, that he is the covenant-keeping God. In the burning bush, he spoke to Moses. God said, I am. And that was a revelation of God's self-existence. And here, in these verses, Jesus identifies himself as such, that he is the source of all things. Everything consists by him. And that certainly means that he holds our lives in his hands, that he can save us or damn us as he pleases. He owes nothing to us. And so we thank him that instead of giving us what we deserve, that he invites us to come to him for salvation. Now, moving on then in verse number 16, we have another revelation here. Now, this is the book of Revelation, and it just keeps adding to the, to the information that we have about Christ. Thirdly, Jesus is the Messiah. And we see that in these words, I am the root and the offspring of David. He's called the son of David. That's a messianic term. We noted that in our study of Matthew. You remember there were two blind men that spoke to Jesus and they called out to him and they said, Son of David, have mercy on us. And that was the first time in the New Testament that Jesus was called by that term. 
In the 22nd chapter of Matthew, Jesus inquired of the Pharisees what they thought of the Christ. He said uh, in Matthew 22, it says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And they say unto him, The son of David. Now Christ, as you should know, is the same term as Messiah. So Jesus says, in effect, he's saying, What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? And the answer comes back. They, they know this. They know who the Messiah will be. The answer comes back. He is the son of David. And that is the essential link to the kingdom. And that shows us the continuity of Scripture because Jesus doesn't just show up on the scene all of a sudden. He doesn't come as some kind of a pretender to the throne. Before he was born, Gabriel said to Mary, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. Now in our text it says, I am the root and the offspring of David. And that is the same as saying, I am the promised one. I am the one who will establish the everlasting kingdom. Isaiah wrote in a passage I know is familiar to you because we look at this so often at Christmas time. He said, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. In Isaiah chapter 11, it uses the same terminology for the Messiah. And if you read that entire chapter 11, you'll recognize that as being descriptive of the millennial kingdom. And that chapter begins, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And it goes on in that chapter to explain the perfect peace of the kingdom. This is where you find the scripture where it says that the wolf lies down with the lamb. Where it says the lion eats straw like the ox. Where the child plays on the hole of the poisonous snake. And then listen to this observation about this wonderful time of peace and prosperity on earth. When this good king reigns on the throne... Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 11 verse 9, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people, to which shall the Gentiles seek, and the rest shall be glorious. Well, who does that root of Jesse refer to? Well, the connection to Jesse has this obvious meaning concerning the establishment of the original kingdom with David. Now, just by way of further information and for your edification, I think that one of the most moving parts of Scripture is what we read in the last chapter of the book of Ruth. I mean, the entire book of Ruth is just a wonderful story. But that last part, in my estimation, is just some of the most moving scripture that you can read. Ruth is a book about God's providence. And unless you read it too quickly, then you'll just miss the implications of it. But there you'll find the kinsman redeemer. And it's a wonderful story Uh, we, We went through it a few years ago. In order for Christ to be our Redeemer, he had to be our near of kin. He had to belong to the family of men, and that's why he came in human flesh. 
And Ruth is this moving story. And the last part of it ends in this way. Boaz married Ruth. He was her kinsman redeemer. And the last verses say this. And Salmon begat Boaz. And Boaz begat Obed. And Obed begat Jesse. And Jesse begat David. Every time I read that, I think about this. I get a lump in my throat. And maybe you don't understand that. You, you can't unless you get the full implications of the book of Ruth. And you understand that the offspring of Jesse is David. He is the first king of Israel. But this prophecy that we read in Isaiah just a moment ago is way past the time of David. David is dead. And so to whom does that refer? The root of Jesse? Well, that refers to Jesus. He's the one who's descended from David. And so for Jesus to say, I am both the root and the offspring of David, that is a puzzling assertion. Now, continuing the conversation that Jesus had with the Pharisees in Matthew 22, he posed a question to them that was either too difficult for them to answer or one that they didn't want to answer because it would expose the hardness of their heart. So one of, one of the reasons could be that either it's too difficult or to answer it shuts them down and they don't want to give the right answer. But if you, we read here, it says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them the same thing we read a moment ago, saying, what think ye of Christ? Or what think you of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They say unto him, the son of David. And now Jesus poses a question. He saith unto them, how then... Doth David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word. Neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. And do you know why they can't answer this? Well, Revelation 22 is a clue for us. He is the root and the offspring of David. That's the answer to, the, to this question that Jesus asked. So he is the source of David's existence. Well, at the same time, he is descended from David. Well, who's the source of everyone's existence? Well, that source is God, isn't it? God is the source of everyone's existence. He's the one who's the creator. And who is the descendant of this man, David? Well, the descendants of men are men, aren't they? Or if you prefer, the descendants of men are people. So, what does this tell us when he says, I am the root and the offspring of David? Well, Revelation 22 is actually equivalent to a declaration of the hypostatic union. And if you don't understand that, it simply means that Jesus Christ is both God and man. He is the God-man. Now, where Jesus was going with this is not at all where the Pharisees wanted to go. Jesus was explaining Old Testament Scripture to them. Now, they're experts in the Old Testament. They, they're supposed to know the Scriptures, but they don't know this. How are they going to explain this everlasting kingdom that's going to be established by the Messiah? Well, at the same time, he's a descendant of David, and he's David's Lord. How can he be both? Well, another time, Jesus was invited to read Scripture in the synagogue in Nazareth, and he stood up to read. This is Isaiah chapter, or rather Luke chapter 4. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. That's a quotation from Isaiah in which Jesus declared himself to be the Messiah. That he is the God-man on earth. And he stopped just short in that reading. Left out one part of that Isaiah quote. The part of the scripture that had not yet been fulfilled was the day of vengeance that was coming. And so if they didn't receive him as the king then, then there was coming a day when which they would be forced to bow before him. Well, we have that whole story, don't we? It's wrapped up for us here in the book of Revelation. It's the full and final revelation of the day of his vengeance. So either for him or against him, You either both receive his invitation and claim it as your Savior and Lord, or you refuse him and you suffer the consequences of it. And so as a prelude to this invitation, Jesus reminds us this one last time of the connection that he has to Old Testament prophecy, that he is the Messiah, that he is the last king who will sit on this throne, that he will establish an everlasting kingdom. And the first phase of that kingdom will be the restoration of the glory days of Israel, the kingdom to Israel. And at that time, all the nations of the world will be included. Even the Gentiles will seek into this kingdom. And then when that kingdom ends, or when that time period ends, the world is destroyed, and then Jesus Christ becomes the king of the new heavens and the new earth. And then finally we have this last phrase in verse number 16. We've just read, he is the root and the offspring of David. And I hope that you followed that, how we make that connection, that this particular phrase gives us that hypostatic union, that he must be God and he must be man at the same time. And then we have this concluding remark there in verse 16, and the bright and morning star. Fourthly, Jesus is our hope. He is the bright and morning star. Now, the first thought that, that came to my mind when I read this scripture is that, is that of the wise men. When they first came to Jerusalem and they were looking for the Christ, and when they first arrived, they said, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. They said, we have seen his star. And the presence of that star may have a subliminal meaning in the verse because Jesus is that star. His his star shines brighter than any other because he's the one who stands out above the rest. His star is the brightest in the heavens. All other lights are lesser lights. You remember when Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus and later on he related the story of his conversion. He talked about this bright light that shone around him and he spoke to the king and he says, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. His brightness is above the brightness of the sun. Well, what is the sun? 
I mean, we're, we all know that, don't we? The sun is a star, and it shines brightly uh, because it's so close to us. We see it in the daytime because it's so close to us. And may I say to you that Jesus is even closer? The sun is 93 million miles away, but Jesus being so close to the earth, he's brighter than the brilliance of the sun. He stands out among men. Now, when people heard him speak, they were astonished at him, and they said, nobody ever spoke like this man. Now, if you'll turn with me to Numbers 24, I want to show you here that there is a heathen prophet that knew about this star. He could see it. This is part of the story of Balaam, and Balaam was hired by Balak to curse Israel, and Balaam prophesied that a star would rise that would outshine all others. And so Balaam said to Balak, he says, come with me and let me show you what God is going to do to you and your people and to all of his enemies. Now here's what Balaam said in Numbers 24, beginning in verse 14. And now, behold, I go unto my people. Come therefore, and I will advertise thee what this people shall do to thy people in the latter days. And he took up his parable and said, Balaam, the son of Beor, has said, and the man whose eyes he hath opened has said, he hath said, which heard the words of God and knew the knowledge of the Most High, which saw the vision of the Almighty falling into a trance, but having his eyes open. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Sheth. And Edom shall be a possession, Seir also shall be a possession for his enemies, and Israel shall do valiantly. Out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion, and shall destroy him that remaineth of the city. Now what do you call someone who is a standout? When people achieve notoriety, they're called stars. We have rock stars. We have star athletes. We have Hollywood stars. I mean, these are all people that are out of the ordinary, extraordinary in some way. They've achieved some kind of success that other people don't have. Well, Jesus is the star above all stars. He's the bright morning star. And and that's significant because the star points out hope. It's a symbol of hope. The morning star is the one that's brightest in the heavens. Because when the daylight dawns and all the other stars are being eclipsed by the light of the sun, it's that morning star that still shines. It's the brightest one that can be seen. And that's what Jesus is. The morning star is the hope of tomorrow. That's what the symbolism symbolism has always been. If you listen to what Zacharias prophesied about his son John the Baptist and how he would prepare the way of Christ, he says, And thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in a shadow of death to guide our way or guide our feet in the way of peace. So that verse also tells us who Jesus is. He is the day spring from on high. In other words, he is the one that gives light to those that are hopelessly in darkness. Isn't that what we were? 
hopelessly in darkness until the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ shined into us. There's only one person who can make that kind of darkness go away, and that's Jesus Christ. Peter prophesied of him as a star that shines brightly. He said, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. This is, to me, an outstanding picture of Jesus. Just outstanding, just a beautiful picture, such a lovely description of him. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now you see, all of this precedes this invitation in verse number 17. And so when you get there and you read the invitation with all this information that's been given preceding it, how do you not accept this invitation? How do you say no to the one who is the hope of the hopeless? How do you say no to Jesus who's coming again, who's returning to the earth, and he is actually called the blessed hope? And this is what Jesus will do. He'll break through the skies, and every eye shall behold him. All attention shall be drawn to him. No one will miss him. Somehow, when Christ comes back across all time zones at exactly the same time, across the hemispheres, Jesus Christ will appear and we'll see the brightness of his coming. It's a simultaneous sunrise, you could put it that way. A simultaneous sunrise that happens all over the world. Now, the close of the New Testament has a striking similarity to the close of the Old Testament. Before that long night of 400 silent years when God never spoke to anyone, when there was no prophet in Israel, before that 400 years began, there was a promise that was given. And in the last book of the Bible, the last chapter, Malachi 4, but unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And then after 400 years, Christ came into the world. He was born as a baby. He lived as the perfect God-man. He went to the cross and died for our sins. And then he was put into a tomb. And then he arose from the grave. And then he ascended into heaven. And when he did, he left this promise that he would return. Now, to many of us, it seems like that we have been in a long, dark night. It seems like so long, as Peter said, and we talked a little bit about it this morning in our forum class in Second Peter chapter 3, there are people that ask, where is the promise of his coming? And sometimes Christians get like that. It's, it's like a long, dark night, and we think, where is the promise of his coming? And it seems like it's been forever. We've lived in this wicked world for so long, and we want Jesus to come back, and we wonder, where is that promise of his coming? But time is just a pittance to God. A thousand years is no more than a day to him. But he's coming back. And when he does come, he comes as this bright morning star. And that means when he comes, he dispels all the darkness. That light of Jesus Christ shining around the world dispels, pushes away all the darkness and you and I that are Christians that know him, we begin to live in the light of the eternal day. 
Here's what we read about him in Revelation 21:23. And the city had no need of the sun, neither the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. In chapter 22, verse 5, And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. When you read things like that, how do you refuse this invitation? When all hope is lost, he's your hope. So we encourage people to trust him, receive him as Savior, to live in that light, and he promises that he comes with a reward. Now, as I said, those last verses in Ruth really do give me cold chills because it shows me there that going all the way back to this time in the Old Testament that God was always had this plan, that God was always orchestrating all events until everything culminates in the glory of God. And so we see that divine providence that's working in the Old Testament. And then we come down to the end here in Revelation and we begin to see all of that tied together in this one glorious verse where God becomes man. Now Ruth gives me the goosebumps because it's that picture of the, of the kinsman redeemer. He showed how that he would begin this kingdom with David. And we come to Revelation and it just lifts us to greater heights because one that is greater than David is coming to sit on the throne. David called him Lord. And that's what we do. We call him Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence tonight and there's no way that I can adequately express what's written in the verse that we've just studied tonight. These descriptive phrases that are given of Jesus, there's no way we can touch bottom of them. And what great hope that there is in knowing Christ as Savior and knowing that he's coming back for us and expecting the glory of God to shine around the world as he breaks through the skies. Lord, we, we don't even know how to even think about that we're just captivated overwhelmed by it i just pray lord that you would open the hearts of people that they would see what we see there's so many people that have no idea what we're talking about tonight even christians sometimes become confused by what we're talking about here but to think about jesus christ the god man who gave himself for us the one who redeems us the one who will take us to heaven the one who's promised that he will return for us It's just simply more than we can express with words. Lord, speak to your people tonight and help us to to leave this place with this expectation, with a full heart, with the light of the gospel shining in us and shining from us, that we might give the same information to people that have no hope, dying without Jesus in this world. Lord, help us, bless us, help us to do your will. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's all